Hello and welcome to Business Without My name's Dominic Frisbee and Ori Clark is a company that specialises in both law and accountancy. And one of its partners is Andrew Ori, who until recently had been pronouncing his name Andrew Ori. But we discovered, in fact, he discovered that he's been pronouncing his name wrong. It is, in fact, Ori. And one of the observations of Mr. Ori was that he noticed that his firm had so many interesting clients doing wonderful and interesting things. And he decided he wanted to share these, these interesting things with a wider audience. And so the result is this podcast. So, Mr. Ori... Ori, Andy, hello. Um, who's our guest today? Uh, and tell us a bit about him. Thank you, Dominic. Um, I have to, I, it's really hard to pronounce my surname. I must give people credit. I have to think about it myself. And talking of difficult names to pronounce. How did, how did you end up pronouncing it wrong in the first place? I'd been doing it for years. And then my sister suddenly said to me, you know, that's not how you say our name. And it, But she kept saying how to say it. And I was like, isn't that the same? What are you saying? What am I saying? You know, so... I don't know, I find it very, well, you know, yeah, talking of difficult names, um, I- Iceland, if you've ever been to it, has some spectacularly difficult names to pronounce. I think I can do this one. I can certainly, Olaf, um, we're joined by the wonderful Olaf Thorkerson. Thorkerson? <laughs> do I get away with it? Say your name, is that how I say it? it I would say Olaf Thorkelson. There we go. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, well, you're close, you're close. Yeah. Close enough. And, and if you don't know about Icelandic surnames, they helpfully tell you their father's name and say whether you're the son or daughter. So Olaf's surname, your father is Thorkan. Thorkell, yeah. Yeah, that's his name. Okay. Anyway, Olaf is a wonderful person and a, a serial entrepreneur, currently CEO of a business called uh, Data Dwell, um, which Actually, I'm, I, I would sort of, I, I will fail to give it a good description, so I might get you to describe it. He's He's been in business quite a while, I would say, um, and he has a, a, a close relationship with his uh, business partner, Scarpy, who he's been in business as well. And I guess that's that's the first question. Could you tell us, please, uh, Olaf, what is Data Dwell and what does it do? Yeah, I can. Thank you for this. Great introduction. <laughs> terrible, terrible. Yeah, so Datadoll focus on helping companies delivering right content at the right time in the customer journey. So it, in its core, we're providing marketing with a tool to deliver content at the right time to sales. So this is, of course, a tongue twister, but we do this within the CRM platform called Salesforce. So if you, if you dumb it down a little bit, what is basically meaning is that Sales has the right content to use when they're selling. That's as simple as it is. But there's a mechanism behind this, how the tool does this and how it provides value both to sales and marketing and, and functions above that. For example, the revenue team, so above the sales leadership and above the marketing leadership. So that's a little bit of what uh, the solution does that we have. And it's probably worth commenting. I mean, you taught me quite a lot about this, but you know, Salesforce is really one of these dominant, enormous platform. So, mm-hmm. so it, you know, it's, it's your, your, your tool within that platform. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. So basically Salesforce is a humongous platform that just does client-facing communication. And so it's a CRM platform. Uh, but there are gaps in that platform, a lot of them. Uh, so what happens is there are ISVs like us that come into, the, into this ecosystem and we create something to fill those gaps that Salesforce is not providing uh, to their client base. So in this case, one of the gaps that is in the system, in the, in the ecosystem is that the marketing team don't have a 
reliant way of sharing content to their sales team. So here we're talking about big teams, so enterprise, mid-market to enterprise companies. So they have hundreds of sales employees that need to have the right content. So this is one of the gaps that we are just filling in uh, for Salesforce and our products then sold directly in this ecosystem. Can you give us an example of, of how that works in practice? So, for example, what would be a typical sales team? What, what are we selling? So, in, in this case, for sales enabled, in most cases, uh, is that you're focusing more on where the complexity in the sales cycle. So, it's mostly B2B sales. There are some cases in B2C, but most of them are B2B sales. So, let's say you're targeting a company. Uh, what is? Just tell us, what's a B2B yeah. sale? Yeah, business to business sales. So, okay. it's a business selling to another business. So, we're not selling to individuals, uh, but we're selling to a company, other companies. So in a case where you have complexity in the sales cycle, you could be targeting a company or a vertical or industry that has a specific language you need to talk about, with a specific uh, business language you want to talk about, how you refer to people within those business. So one example of, of how an easy use case is, how our solution is used, is that um, if I create a lead in Salesforce, there will automatically come transcripts of how I should address this person I'm talking to. How would I talk to her? How would I try to sell? How will I try to get them over the line in, in, the, in, in the stages? And maybe on another point, I will have some comparison sheets that I need to share with them. So I have that documents in front of me instead of trying to find it on my computer, going through my emails uh, and things like that. So it, it's, it's journeying you through the sales cycle uh, of how to gain new clients. So effectively... You, you, you're, you're sending them the right price list. You're sending them the right proposal. And that in a large company, they can have a central team. Like, you know, I, I, I've been there, you know, within our own um, team. You know, I'm, I'm responsible for some of the marketing and stuff. And I see sometimes someone sent something with a logo from like 10 years ago. And like I'm like, where did, where did you find this? And they're like, oh, I found it over here on DriveX. And I'm like, what the hell? Um, is it, 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 it's that problem on a grand scale these big businesses have, I assume. Yeah. So if you're in a small business, this, of course, isn't the problem. But when you start coming to a certain scale as a company, high growth companies, they face this. And of course, the bigger enterprise and, and, and mid-market companies as well, is that when you come to that scale, this starts to be a huge issue with the companies. As you're saying, they're sharing the wrong content. It's in, it's unprofessional. They're not sharing the right content. You're damaging your reputation, damaging how you proceed. But most of the time, what you're looking at is more to get better performance out of your sales team. You're getting... Getting, a, getting the education in front of the sales reps as fast as possible. And on the flip side, what happens is for marketing and, and the revenue team, so you have revenue ops, that's basically people above the sales and marketing leadership. So what they're looking at is, how can I repeat successful business? How can I repeat getting new clients? How can I repeat getting the success that some of my sales reps are doing? And you're monitoring that as well with what content they're using. Are they sharing it? What's the indication of people that... Uh, how they engage with the content that you sent. I know I'm getting technical, but but we're basically following you through the whole journey as a client, like knowing what you've done and when you've done it. Is this through email? Salesforce ultimately still emailing me something, isn't it? Yeah, so basically you sent an email, you have a link, you open the link, and it's like a web page with all the content. So we're tracking all the interactions that you do with that content, how many people looked at it, who looked at it. Because you, on the other end, we have the information of, I'm talking to Andy now, so when I share it to you, Andy, 
I know when you're opening it, it's Andy that opened that document. He opened it on his mobile, he opened it in his computer. So it starts to paint a picture of your journey of becoming a client. Like what did you do and how did you do that? So you start seeing correlations of what are, and when you're doing forecasting models and things like that, what you start seeing is that if a person that you think is interested and he's not interacting with any of your content or any of your points of content points as a company, you can disqualify him really fast out of the pipeline. Now, or on the other point, you can, as a sales leader, you can start to say to your team, hey, you need to focus on this to try to get them back in. So you start to see like a, a bigger picture of, of what is happening. So that's why I'm saying from a leadership standpoint, this is the benefit you get. But from a person on the, on the ground, what you're seeing is that you're getting the right content to use and you're, you're on point with your, with your training. But, but it's, a, it's a little different from which point of view you want to look at it. I think my glory days of sales, if I can butt in, <laughs> was uh, <laughs> it was shortly after I left university, and it would have been about maybe 1993. And a friend of mine uh, had got involved with this burgeoning new technology called the mobile phone. And it was in the old days of a Rolodex. And he handed me this huge Rolodex of numbers who I should ring up and try and sell them a mobile phone, persuade them why they needed a mobile phone. And so, you know, most of the people you'd phone up, and they were people were quite polite in those days because telesales was a relatively new thing. And anyway, and I phoned up about item four or five on the on the roller decks, and I said, you know, I want to speak to Mr. Smith, please. Um, I, want, I think he'd be interested in buying this new mobile phone. And I got the reply, you'll need a shovel. <laughs> and... <laughs> I was like, what? He died six months ago. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you'll need a shovel was about as uh, devastating a, a, a comeback as I think any telesales person has ever had. I suppose you don't really get that in, in the emails, do you, Olaf? No, but it's the one thing that we like to refer to when you're sending those emails. You're, you're, and this is the world we live in today. It's all remote now. We're sending email commissions. We're not meeting people. We're not going to events when we're doing sales. And you're missing all of this body language that you get when you meet people. You see yeah. people, how they interact. They know how they, they are with you when you talk to them. But the digital footprint that you leave when you click on something, when you look at it, that you highlighted something, you went into a document, you forward it to your boss or forward it to some colleague, it starts to paint a picture of are you interested or not. So it's basically just taking these interactions that we can have when we're interacting with each other in front of each other into just the digital footprint. And this is done so much. Many people refer to this to simplify. It's big data. Yeah, It's like a very simplified term over nothing or everything. I mean, I sell quite a lot of stuff you know, through emails, I'll send out a blanket email if I'm trying to raise money, something or selling my book or selling my CD. And I do sell quite a few like that, but it's all people who know me already. Mm-hmm. I think email is ve- it's very difficult to sell something to somebody who's never met you by email, any form of digital, really. I mean, the th- for me, the theory there is that what you can do with email, and this is quite a trodden route, is if you get an email from someone you don't know trying to sell something, you'll ignore it. But if they keep emailing you, you will eventually look at it and say, what is this? And then you may say, "Like, who are you? Like, What do you want? And then you might meet them. So you're still sort of going down a traditional path. But I, I do agree with you that, that 
that that you could if you email out to people, people who who know you will will respond. It's um we're very good at filtering out filtering out the stuff. And I guess that's what you're saying you do, I love, is we don't realise, we think that they don't know that we, we're we acting like we haven't replied, so we don't give a shit, you know? But we don't realise that by looking at it and then looking at it again, now it's like, ah, oh, you looked at it twice. So therefore, this person might be interested. Can you track that? Can you see how many times they read your email? Yeah, you can, but that's... To make things even com- more complicated, that's market automation. That's the tool above us. So we start to interact when you go deeper. So market automation tracks when you go to a website, for example. It links to you went, got an email. They start seeing those points of what you've done. But we normally take over when somebody one-on-one needs to start sharing content. So when I need to share to any proposals or any documents, then we start tracking that. But it paints a whole story from the first interaction that somebody sent Andy an email from the time he looked at it five times and went on the website, submitted something, started talking to us and we shared content. So we know, track the whole journey, like in conversation with other tools as well. So it's a it's a joint project, how market organization and sales enablement work together. But, but emails are tracked. Yes, there's like a little picture in the emails most of the time in the signature. So when you load it up, in your email, it starts tracking. And when you do it again, it starts tracking again. And Okay, I got, I got one this afternoon. So I, I occasionally have a problem with my ears and I have to get them uh, cleaned out. And I don't know what I did. I did something yesterday uh, um, and I've got blocked up ears. So I went on, uh, I was walking the dog. And while I was walking the dog, I went on my phone and I Googled, you know, micro suction clinic near me or something like that. I got the number of one. Um, I phoned them up and booked an appointment for later today and end of it. And then I carried on walking the dog. And then I, so then I just was, you know, like you do with you on your phone. I then clicked on Facebook to see what whoever was saying on Facebook. And the first thing that comes up is ads for microsuction. <laughs> so Facebook was listening to my phone call. Are you listening to people's phone calls, Olaf? No. That's, we cannot do that. Do you believe Facebook's listening to the phone call? That sounds... It's it's either listening to my phone calls or it's tracking what I'm Googling. It's tracking what you're Googling. I think I think Google and Facebook are probably uh, having a chat or there's something in your phone looking at what you're typing. Listening to your phone call, that feels too much. Well, I, I promise you it's not because I've had this before where one time I was with my daughter and I was going skiing the next day and I was talking to my daughter on the landing and I said, should I bring my Timberlands or should I bring my hiking boots? And my daughter goes, bring your Timberlands. And I said, yeah, but they're um, they're a little bit worn out. And that was the conversation. I then got in bed and I was playing on my phone before I got in bed and Amazon's sending, sending me emails about new Timberlands. So I've, I've had this before. Olaf, you must know something about this subject. Do you think that that's... Yeah, that, this is one of the... Like one of the scary part about the data that we're collecting, of course, is that bigger businesses and businesses that have the means to do things, they're creating much higher barriers for others to enter the market. Because what eventually is happening is that when you have all of this data, it's really hard to compete with Amazon. It's really hard to compete with Facebook or Google or any of those that are collecting this kind of data. They know they're selling all of these data points that you're talking about. Oh, I want to buy... Like, let's take a simple action. When, when you're traveling in Iceland, when there was a tourist industry <laughs> and not COVID, uh, they would just buy people that are interested in this kind of travel. 
that are traveling to Iceland that have gone through like Keflavik Airport or something like that, and they can just add, oh, here are a hundred thousand people that we need to push ads to. So you're you're selling, and this is the same in your case, person interested in medical specialized examination, like let's buy that keyword and let's push ads to him. So when he goes on Facebook, there pops up ads. But how they do this exactly, that's, this conversation has come up a lot and I haven't, I'm no expert on it, but but there are there are a lot of <laughs> speculations of how they do this. Is it is it when you type on Messenger? Is it when you type on Facebook? Is it when you talk? Is it, what else is it? Well, I, I think it's to do with cookies and accepting cookies. And you're also accepting things that monitor you, but it's cross app. There's no doubt that it's cross app and it's, it's not just stuff you touch, you know, so Facebook knows what I'm Googling and, but it's, it's also, it hears you. It's got vocal recognition shit and, and, you know, it's fine if it's just selling you products, but who knows what, what else this stuff can be used for in the wrong hands. Um, but Olaf, tell us, let's change the subject. Let's bring it back to you. Um, how many businesses have you run and how many companies have you set up over the years? Tell us about some of those. Ooh, there are a few, quite a few. So what's your, which one are you going to retire on? Uh, retire? That, that's probably two businesses from now. No, I meant, I meant what was your sort of, your hit? What was your feed the world? <laughs> feed the world. <laughs> so <laughs> I was just so, trying to think of a hit single. Sorry, that was the first yeah, one that yeah, came yeah, to yeah, my yeah. mind. Yeah, no, but, but in all fairness, so when you go into this live as being a serial entrepreneur, you're, what you're, what you're doing is that you're always, the stakes are always higher. Let's say that way you start with like something small, small company. And I started with doing some stuff to development. Then you went on to getting investors in the next company. And that was creating technology with software. So it's the touchscreen technology. And what happened after that? We went to data dwell and you get that funded even higher. And what happens when you got this sold somewhere in the future, uh, then what will happen is that I'll just go and do something bigger. And I think this is the mentality that a lot of entrepreneurs have. If they have the wits and have the uh, power to do so, like health and everything, because it, it's stressful. And I, like it's stressful being always on the edge and always always trying to get more money and funding to like, just survive and all of that. But thing, uh, good part for us is that we came to the financial crisis earlier is that what happened for us is that we were well repaired when this hit. So we know what was going to happen in February. We were already knew that small businesses would start failing heavily and they would have to close and fire people and all of that. So we've seen that locally in Iceland. So that would just happen like worldwide. So like in that case, I'm, I'm thankful that uh, that I had that experience from Iceland. But but I think in, in the pursuit of, of what we're doing, like as an entrepreneur, I will keep on doing this. I, I won't stop. I will be doing this at 50 probably. And then people tell me to stop when I'm 60 properly and then I'll stop because of age. Always always tech? I think so. Uh, we're a pair, me and my co-founder Scarpe, and, and, and that's been that I've been on the sales part and, and focused heavily on that uh, while he's focused heavily on tech. And I think that's, uh, that's an industry we know and we're trying to specialize in that industry. Uh, apart from even though Iceland doesn't normally specialize a lot in, in industries uh, because we're so few as a, as a nation. But, but for us as, uh, as individuals, that's where our passion lies. It's in technology. You're very, I mean, you're very innovative as a, as a nation, though. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's a, that's a, that's a good point, uh, is that the country itself, uh, even we have this term, and that translates into it will all work, work out okay. So Icelanders believe things will just correct themselves. The universe will correct itself. But this is, 
this is toxic as well as it is sometimes a blessing. So we we tend to do everything and and, and start to not to like not to be very focused on one thing and and it, like it's all built in the culture. But what has happened is that it's one of the big weaknesses in Iceland as well is that you don't see uh, a lot of specialization in Iceland. And you could say, you know, it's because we're a small country, but you could look at the Netherlands and that's not true there. So you could look at other countries like Denmark, it's not true there or Sweden. So, and, and but, but the thing is that we're missing out here is that we've innovated fast because we had to, like the rough terror and rough like living conditions here and all of that. And we've been quick and innovating, but we have lacked uh, abilities in, taking things to international market, marketing, being specialized in sales, for example. And that's in my business, for example, I had to get all of that knowledge in the UK and the US. So I had to transform into other countries to be able to get that talent pool because the talent pool just doesn't exist in Iceland. Except if you're looking for that talent point to sell fish, then we have it. But apart from that, we don't. One thing that struck me about Iceland when I was there was how many weekend trippers there are from the United States. You know, it's only a three or four hour, maybe a five hour flight from the East Coast of the United States. And, you know, England or Britain often sees itself as this sort of midway point between Europe and the the US, but but Iceland has a very similar role. Yeah, it has. So we've been a midpoint, like, from international politics to just being for tourist destinations. So we've been a middle point in that way for a very long time as a country since just after World War II. But but from a tourist perspective, this has been that Iceland has thought of itself as a hub. So basically a travel hub where you can go when you're going, transatlantic, so going from the US to mainland Europe or the UK. It's an easy way to stop here. And that's something that the companies that were in the travel industry here have picked up on. And it's worked fine for Iceland. So our geolocation has helped us in that way but it's isolating as well it's everything for us is going we always need to take an airplane if we're going somewhere that's the that's the 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 downside of that but i think iceland has played well out of the like position that we have and it's been played that both politically and and then economically as well over the over the last 40 50 years how does an Icelander sell, though? I mean, you're, you're small enough that you have to be careful with your reputation. And I imagine you can't bullshit too much because you can walk out a room and someone could pick up a phone and quickly find out the truth sort of thing. And that's very different to, to, to well, very much America, but also this country that sales is a lot about bullshit. Uh, sort of, I mean, in Iceland, when you sell... Do you need to be very honest or do you, you know? I, I think your reputation here is, as a business owner, it can be ruined overnight if you fail expectation with clients or customers because you don't have a lot of restarts here in Iceland. As you said, it's a small country. So, for example, we have around, I think it was, uh, yeah, it's right about 45 of the 100 biggest companies in Iceland as like clients. And... Uh, and they're they're working with us. So if I ruin one of them, and these are like hundred companies that we are targeting, if I would do something bad to one of them, I'm not going to go into sales somewhere else or fund another company and get the trust. It, it just it's a small market. People will talk to each other. While in London, you can just change verticals. I'll go into selling to instead of selling to real estate, I'll go selling software. Nobody knows my there. But this is just a small team here in Iceland of like marketers, sales executives. 
Like, that's just how it is. It's a, it's a very small market. When you say, like, I had to learn how to sell in the UK, that's what made me think of that because it's like, um, you know, it, 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 there you've got to deliver well, you've got to be honest and everything. What I've noticed, you know, and, and, and I've had the pleasure of working, and I mean pleasure because I find Icelanders and Brits get on tremendously well. We have a, actually a very similar cultures, um, you know, in terms of humour. We think we're a little island that no one cares about, and you really think you're a little island that no one cares about, you know. It's sort of, we have that small island mentality. I mean, the, you know, and and, but I notice, you know, Icelanders are very, trusting they sort of are and they aren't so they come overseas and my and it's less true as as the as the last 20 years have evolved but they they they'd be very open and very trusting which is a brit we actually really like we're really like oh wow you're a straight talker you're an honest person i want to help you i like the underdog i want to help the underdog that's on on the unnatural unlike the americans which love you know the, the the big player we're a bit tall poppy we like we like you being an underdog but we don't want you to get too big so that works well but then i've seen this happen many times is that um, maybe an Icelander doesn't realize that you can't trust all of us or you can't trust this, you know, that we have anonymity, that I can bullshit you and I can walk away and there's no recourse. And that's very confusing. We, is this a fair comment? I, I think it's fair. Uh, like I've seen this and I, I tend to say this if, if people like in my business, of course, in, in, in in sales, I'm, I'm asked by clients and VPs and, and sometimes CEOs of companies, like, just tell the friend out, is it this way, this way? And not just say it, like my personality has been coming from Iceland, it's just telling it how it is. I'm not gonna bullshit it. I'm just gonna say how it is. And if you like it, then great. If you don't like it, then you just have to take it away. But I know in the US, it will be somehow a fairy tale story that's, that's not that the US is weird. Too. I mean, the US yeah, is yeah. weird. But, but when it comes to the UK, I think the UK is more, uh, but this is based on my like personal uh, experience there, is that it's 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 more of, I think you don't want to say no. I think it's... it's, it's uh, No, 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 wanna, no. It's, uh, slightly, yeah. it's slightly different. We can't say yeah. yes. Yeah, we yeah, say, it, say once yes. we say yes, it's a contract. You know, if Dominic rings me up or I ring him up and say, I want you to do that. He might say, well, but if he says, sure, I'll do that. And then he doesn't do it. Then I'm like, fuck this guy. You know, he said to me on the phone, he'd do it. And then he didn't do it. You know, I can't trust him. I can't have anything to do with him. It's very, I don't know, Dominic, you may think I'm talking shit, but we're very like, so we have a lot of ways of not saying either. Just saying, well, give me more time. You know, you, you, you track things all long for a very long time. That's not needed. That's that's it's very inefficient. It, Inefficiency. <laughs> Do you have the concept? We have the concept of the room with the tea. Uh, actually, a New Zealander taught me this. And he says, the problem with Britain is you've got the room with the tea. And he says, you've got, you, in most large companies in the UK, he said, it's, this, it's all about getting in the room with the tea. And you've got the CF, CEO and the CFO and the marketing manager. And he says, and everything's done on sort of unanimity. Everyone's making decisions collectively. So the CFO is making marketing decisions. The marketing man is making finance decisions. And he said, in America, that's not what happens. You have a CEO and he meets with people independently and he holds the vision and he says, fuck off, yes, no. In Iceland, do you do a collective decision making? Oof, that's a tough one. Uh, I think that's not what we do collectively. But but bear in mind, I've 
not worked for other people. I always founded companies. So I think I last worked for somebody when I was in my 20s. So it's, uh, I'm not done in that for a very long time. But, but what I see for most people, it's just like the decision is taken. I'm not saying the CEO needs to take the decision. The marketing managers take the decisions and, and, but, and, and sales directors and all of that, they take decisions on their own. But I, I don't think you need the whole room to say yes on, on this. But here I'm talking like, like what's the mainstream? I'm not like, of course, there are individual companies that will do it that way. But what I'm saying, like, as a, as like a normal practice here, I, I don't think it's that way. What are you most excited about in the, for the future of your business? I think what's been apparent in COVID, and I, like I, a lot of people are talking down COVID, but what has, has happened is there's the transformation of going more digital. And that's something that I like. And then what has happened is that we probably fast forward three, four years into the future of people will be more remote. There will be more interactions over, over the internet. So I think there's a huge opportunity for Datatool exactly at this point in time. On the other flip side of that, over COVID, it has been... I guess most companies, new business is much tougher. It's much tougher than it was six, nine months ago. And and and, and your project now is maybe to maintain and just get through this position and then, then then you will look at it. But what is happening for companies that will survive this in a good way and it won't be highly indebted or or, or, or be in a bad position after after the uh, after the crisis or pandemic has gone over, I think those companies that are focusing digital, they will be huge winners out of this. So I think from our perspective, it's looking promising and we're in a strong position. What will happen for the next year? And I'm really looking forward to like the next summer. I, my realistic view on COVID is that we'll probably have passed somewhere in the summer. So like from a travel restriction and, and the market's jump starting again. So I think it's fair to say that I'm optimistic. Should we be investing in Iceland, the UK, Europe or the United States? Which, which geographical region are you more bullish about? It depends on the industries you're investing in. So if you look at the UK, you're yeah, going to mention the word that nobody should mention. Uh, like when you look at what, what happened with Brexit and COVID and going in that day, what will happen is that the there will be a lot of opportunities in the UK. But on the other hand, you will have a huge deficit to deal with over the next next years. Well, not the year, next years, probably 10 years or five years. So I would say it's probably the smaller nations that you would be focusing on. So in Europe, you have a lot of small nations. So I'm not saying go in Germany or France. I would rather say it's the small nations in Scandinavia, maybe Iceland as well, looking at like Belgium, the Netherlands, countries like that. I think I think the pool there of people, they I think those countries will be much faster to re- recover and then the economy and then the people that are working there as well. Why small nations? Why small nations are quicker to recover? Uh, I base this out of just pure numbers on our end. I... The fastest movement of companies now to buy and invest are in small nations. And these are just hard numbers that I'm looking at in our own pipeline. If you look at things like um, GDP per capita, like the 10 richest nations in the world on a GDP per capita basis all have populations of 10 million or below. You know, in the same way that small companies are more efficient, the same goes for small nations. And I just think the opportunities lie there. I, I just I look at this from a pure numbers, and I we changed our tactic of targeting smaller nations and 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 like companies within those smaller countries, and that's paid off on our end. And then I, and we still target like, but the UK, for example, is slower to recover, and that's just a fact of how how I look at it. 
if there's one message to take away from this podcast, it is independence for Scotland. (laughs) (laughs) I won't touch that one. (laughs) Um, We have come to that moment, ladies and gentlemen, where we ask our final question. And I'm delighted to inform listeners that we have a new final question. And the final question is this. If there was one thing, Olaf, in the world that you could change over the next five years, what would it be? Oh, putting me on the spot here. So I think if we look at humanity and like what are what are we challenging and what are the biggest challenges we have is that we're a single planet species. So I would focus on things of getting us off the planet to another planet in the next five years. And that's something I'm a strong believer in and have been for a very long time. So I would say, yeah, colonize Mars, colonize the moon, whatever it is, just what planet suits us. And that's a, like a, the world, not as a country. And is, is that to inspire? I mean, my dad believes this very strongly, but I've heard very strong arguments against it. Like, God, we haven't even got to the ocean yet. You know, like fucking, what are we going to the moon for? You know, and it's so inefficient and blah, blah, blah. But what... what, it, what but yeah. innovation will come out of it when you start doing that. When people start being there and you have new set of challenges, innovation will start to grow there. You have other resources off planet. There are things that will happen. I'm, I'm a firm believer that will spark like a huge interest industrial like revolution like again for the world there are lots of people that i would like to colonize the moon and many of them live in my street <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm not gonna go the i was not saying that <laughs> intergalactic space travel comes to my street the better <laughs> um uh, olaf it's been a real pleasure talking to you and uh, as we close why don't you just give out uh, some uh, bit of social media so if somebody wants to follow you on social media they can um, find out a bit more about you and what you do yeah i'm not much of an active person on social media but where you can find me is on linkedin uh, so feel free to connect to me there and i'll do my best to answer if you have any questions for me uh, if you want to follow the company we're both on linkedin and facebook and our website is datatoll.com do you go olaf or olafur on linkedin Olaver, yeah, yeah. Olaver, as, as, okay. As but I'm going to say it in English accent. So you said it Olaver, but uh, but it's it's written Olafur, O L A F U R, and then Thorkelson, T H O R K E L S O N. And I'm going to now say it in an Icelandic accent, and my Icelandic accent, I promise you, is going to be much better than Andy's. Olafur Thorkelson. It's <laughs> <laughs> much better. Much better. <laughs> Great stuff, guys. Andy, Olaf, thank you very much. And thank you to our listeners. And we'll be back with another episode very soon. And make sure you subscribe to the show so you catch the next episode of Business Without Until then, from Andy Uri and me, Dominic Frisbee, it's cheerio. Cheerio.